Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh. Today, we're going to dive into Roger's third Grand Slam title, the 2004 Wimbledon. We have our appropriate backdrops at the ready. This is where Brian, Roger defends his title. Uh, gets to play first on center court, I learned, through one of my newspaper.com clippings. I can't plug that service enough at this point, right? Uh, Same. It's a tradition for defending champs, something that was interesting that I learned. Brian, what tennis traditions are you particularly fond of? That's a really good question. Um, The defending champ opening play center court is cool, but it does give short shrift to the women's champion from the year prior because it's always the men's defending champion begins play at Wimbledon 1 p.m. on that next day, on that following year, the first Monday. Um, It is a cool one, though. Um, It would be cool if it was a little more well-balanced. Uh, but in terms of tennis traditions, I guess the scoring system in itself is a is a unique tradition because it's unlike anything we see in any other sport. And trying to explain to people why love means zero and love isn't necessarily a good thing in tennis to have. Um, I guess maybe <laughs> that's the unique wrinkle of tennis that appeals. Interesting. When I wrote that question, I posited that question to you. I was thinking about what I love, and it has nothing to do with Roger Federer, but everything to do with Rafa Nadal, who we're going to talk about in just a minute. His idiosyncrasies and quirks on the sideline and the way he arranges his water bottles. That's a tradition as far as I'm concerned from a spectator point of view and certainly from a commentary point of view. So we're at the point now, 15, 16 years into his career, I, we're calling that a tradition, not his tics and habits and rituals. <laughs> it's we're, it's tradition territory. Okay. You're not watching tennis if you're not watching people's sideline idiosyncrasies. That's I, I said it. That's very true. And you, you notice that with everybody. Serena Williams, if you notice, after the first game of every uh, match, the players walk around. They switch after the first game. And players will always take the side by their chair. It's supposed to be continuous movement, but they always stop and get a drink. They don't sit down. Serena never does that. She goes around the far end of the net, uh, away from the chair, away from the umpire, and just walks around to the other side. That's one thing uh, that Serena does that if you watch her matches, you'll notice. What do you make of that? Is that avoidance or is that intimidation or a combination? I think it's intimidation. Um, I mean, she has the intimidation factor certainly by this point, but I think it it kind of goes to show that like, I'm not, I'm not walking past you right now. I don't need a drink. I'm going, I'm, we just played that first game and I'm going right to work. I'm not stopping. I'm not doing anything other than focusing on this next game, whether it's her first service game or her first return game. That's my read on it. At least it's funny. You mentioned her. She's going to factor into our story here today too, for a, a pretty interesting reason. Let's start with Miami 2004, though. That's what we talked about last time. Nadal beats Federer for their first head-to-head matchup. I noticed a couple of things, and I would love to get your take on this. I noticed that he played most of the match three feet behind the baseline. What is a player saying when they play that far back? What was he saying? What was the game plan? Well, at that point that was more rare to play a match that deep. Yeah. And now we see Nadal go even deeper. If you look at a lot of these tournaments now, not on grass, but on hard courts, they'll have lettering 
um, behind the baseline saying usually the name of the city, wherever they are. Rafa will play oftentimes on those letters. It's about nine feet behind the baseline. He'll play on the lettering. He'll play back. We'll see Dominic Team do it. And what it does is if you have the strength these guys have, it gives you more time. Time to react, time to set yourself up into a, it's a defensive position, but you're able to generate offense from it when you play that far back. So that's the message you're sending when you see the guy there. But then when you play Rafael Nadal and, okay, he's so far back, but then he's still crushing winners and driving you nuts off both wings, that's a whole added element. So that's why when Nadal first came onto the tour, so much about his game was so revolutionary. And in Miami, the Masters event, we talked last time about the importance of the Masters events and Federer had rolled into Miami. He had won the Australian Open, took over the number one ranking, wins Indian Wells, the huge tournament there. Then he goes out and loses to Nadal at in Miami, and that's just something that he had never he'd never seen before. It was their first meeting head-to-head. He said he was certainly aware of Nadal, but to get the taste, that's a different story. And Federer did not play well in that match, and Rafa was very well aware of that after the match, that he did not get Federer on his best day. That's a, a huge win for Nadal, who at that point, was not even 18, I don't think. Yeah, yeah he was 17. A few months away from turning 18. Um, so Nadal played really well. Federer played poorly. And that was the start of what became what's become uh, such a historic rivalry. Yeah, I read that Roger was ill earlier in the tournament. Apparently, the first round match, he barely snuck through that. I think it was against Davidenko. Shot of the match was a very audacious shot for a 17-year-old. It was a cross-court forehand drop shot. And I mentioned to you last time that look that Roger sometimes throws at people. Nadal earned a look after that yeah. drop shot. Um, and there's a couple of things where Roddick in this final, where Roddick says, you know, he yells too good or he calls a volley shot. Like it was, that was a great volley. This is a part of the dynamic or the banter that goes back and forth, the game within a game, if you will, that a spectator like myself gets, it gets you to jump out of your seat. Um, a lot of people ask me, there are, look, it's, look, it's, it's fair to say at this point, Tennis is a minority sport, okay? It doesn't have the global following that the NBA does, that the NFL does, certainly that soccer does. So to be- I'm actually going to jump in, Vic. I think it is a global sport more than it is an American sport. Um, Yes, yes. It is a global sport. It's got tremendous global following. I would say, yeah, the NBA has rocketed in terms of the global awareness. Uh, The NFL is getting up there as well. Um, But even, okay, baseball has international appeal in certain hotspots. Asia, you go down to Central America, Mexico, and of course, in the United States and Canada. Um, But everywhere in the world, people are following and they're fans of tennis. I mean, one of the last big events right before the world went into lockdown was Federer and Nadal playing that match for Africa, Mm. a a charity match in South Africa, and they filled a soccer stadium. Uh, Federer, of course, is uh, his mother is from South Africa, so he has uh, ties to that country. But to see these guys who they're not, there's no tour level, main tour events in South Africa, um, to see the two legends, icons of the game, fill up a stadium. I know Bill Gates was there and some other celebrities, but that's the kind of thing they do. Something else Federer has done now, he, he does this exhibition tour uh, in the offseason, usually November, December, sometime around there. And he'll go play in South America, Central America, and he's filling up soccer stadiums with, uh, lately it's been Sasha Zverev, Alexander Zverev. Um, so that, I think, it is a global sport. I think it 
in the U.S., outside of the U.S. Open and the majors, it does get a bit lost in the shuffle, but it, it's truly a global sport. Thank you for clarifying that. That is absolutely accurate. Let me throw this back at you. Why do you think it's not bigger in America? It is such compelling, as you know, television. That moment that I just described to you, uh, that look after that you know, bold, audacious drop shot, that's... That's as good as you're going to get see in a boxing match or an MMA fight or, you know, a fourth quarter, two minutes to go, top of the key, you know, a jumper off a screen. Why isn't it bigger in the States? You know, the best American athletes aren't always flocking to tennis. It's something the USTA has really tried to move forward the last couple of years, and they've done a pretty good job with it, is making it more accessible because tennis has this reputation, especially in this country, I would say more than in others, of being this country club, rich person sport. Um, the best examples of that not being the case are Venus and Serena Williams learning how to play tennis um, on the hard courts in Compton, California. That is as far from a country club as you can get. So making the game more accessible, that's part of it. Steering good athletes to tennis. Those run hand in hand. And I, I think an issue is there has not been that dominant number one men's tennis player. You had Roddick towards the top of the game for the better part of, you know, the first decade of this century, but then going back, you've got to go back to Sampras and Agassi. And then before that, McEnroe and Connors, Courier, Chang, um, those guys, Yvonne Lendl, um, you know, he was born in Europe. So people didn't always view him as an American. He's an American player. Um, and the personalities that come with it. Okay. Sampras, not the most, outgoing guy on the court in terms of a McEnroe, a Connors, a Roddick, who had the big personalities. You see that now. John Isner doesn't have the huge personality. These young American guys, they have more of that in the Francis Tiafo, Taylor Fritz. Riley Opelka is a little more business-like, but Fritz and Tiafo, they certainly have some flair. So I think those are all elements. And then it's tough when you look at the schedule. Um, because it's such a global sport, Okay, here we go. It's January 1st. I want to watch tennis. Well, I'm probably staying up um, at some ungodly hour based on where I am in the U.S. to watch some event somewhere in Australia or in a far different time zone. Okay, I'll, I'll get into it for the Australian Open, but I know I'm going to stay up late. I'll watch a little of the coverage, listen to a little of the coverage before I go to bed, but I'm not going to be able to follow this tournament. Then it goes off the radar for a bit. Oh, here we are. We're at Indian Wells now. We're at Miami. The the drawn out nature of the schedule, the fact the times don't always line up with US TV, I think those do make it a little bit harder to follow like you would. Okay, if I'm a, a Knicks fan, I know the Knicks are playing at seven o'clock tonight yeah. and then on Thursday again. So I'm able to watch that. It, there's a little more fluctuation and variation in tennis that makes it tricky. Yeah, for sure. Like, there's no Monday night football equivalent. It's not something that Americans typically can set their schedules to. But it is compelling, nonetheless. Big reason why we're doing this. Um, and that shot was as jaw-dropping yesterday as it was then when I watched it. The stat that jumped out for me was first serves in that match, Brian. 60% to Nadal's 80%. What are the implications of this win? How prophetic was it? And let me follow that up with a third sort of question. If Roger wins this match, Brian, does he best Nadal in their overall? Is history rewritten? 
I don't think history's rewritten in the long term. Yeah, it's it's rewritten that okay, Nadal doesn't win the first meeting, but it's not like this gave Nadal all the confidence that he. I mean, sure, it did give him that confidence, but it's not like that if Nadal had lost this match, he was going to wilt every time he played Federer in the future. Um, but the implications are that it was another announcement from Nadal that this guy is for real and he's going to be a problem for everybody else. I think that's the best way to look at it. You know, when Allen Iverson came into the NBA, he was the answer. Um, Nadal was sort of similar to that because we talked about his junior career last time where, you know, he plays Pat Cash, a former Wimbledon champion in an exhibition when he's 14 because the other pro got yeah. hurt or wasn't able to play. And he, he beats Pat Cash. There were those moments, those like LeBron in high school-like moments where you see Nadal and you're like, wow, this, this guy can – can really do something special. Of course, a lot of that was on clay, and that's where he had his first early success. The success on the other surfaces took a while. But to do it on the hard court against Federer, who's in the midst of what's in a historic year, we'll talk about that in a bit too, that sent a firm statement of intent that, okay, this guy is going to be very good. There is a fan argument out there that Nadal got into his head and and that followed them through their journey together, which is still ongoing, by the way. The journey's not over, but you don't put any stock into that, huh? I am not disputing that Nadal got into a different place in Federer's head, but I don't think that it was based off this one match, that okay. Federer lost a match in Miami, and that sowed the seeds of doubt. Maybe it it had him thinking, certainly, but this one match I don't think had the huge impact on the overall head-to-head and rivalry. My one thing with Federer has always been he loses more than the other person wins. And maybe you can disprove that for me as we go through this. But I feel like with Nadal and with Djokovic, he's mentally different when he plays them. And it's it's just an observation that I've made watching him and so many others have made as well. But you pointed this match to me last week, and I thank you for doing that. That's why I looked into it. And when I looked into the history of it, and then when I read about it, and when I watched it, the highlights, I saw the same look on his face then uh, that I saw all these years later. And it actually gave me a tremendous amount of context. So thank you, but also not thank you, because uh, now I know watching him in all these matches going forward that there's a piece of him that knows that this guy's got his number. But again, let's continue and see how it plays out. They play again, by the way. I want to just mention this. We may or may not talk about it if it's appropriate. They play this tournament in Miami again in 2005. Federer comes back and wins it. Um, and he comes back from two down to beat Nadal. So there's an argument for resetting the confidence meter, if you will. But again, that is part of the storyline for 2005. I don't know if it ties into anything that you want to say about this particular tournament, though. Yeah, I think that is a good place to pick up when we look at, spoiler alert, Wimbledon 2005 and how <laughs> that lead up is different because you also have um, some interesting clay court matches for Federer coming a year later. But we talk about it a lot, how it's it's different in tennis where you come back as the defending champion, it's a big deal, but a whole lot has happened in the one year to the next when yes. you look at it through a specific tournament. So we will pick it up and the importance of that for Federer, but let's... Keep it spring, early summer, 2004 for Let's now. keep it chronological. Um, some scenarios coming into this Wimbledon tournament, Brian. Roger's match record was 39-4, and four, um, which begs the question, who beat him? Uh, Tim Henman beat him. 
Nadal beat him in Miami, which we talked about. Albert Costa in Rome. And Curtin, who you've mentioned a few times, beat him in the French in the round of 32. Coming into this Wimbledon, he had five singles titles. And his career singles titles to this point was 16. For the year, he finished 74-6 and six with 11 singles titles. And I'm mentioning that now because there's something I want to do later. Maybe at the end of this episode, we can start the process. But I want to explore what Roger's best year was. So I'm putting that on the table for you. He didn't lose to anybody in the top 10. And some statistics that I found that are interesting... He won 92% of his service games, which is better than Sampras or Roddick's best service years, statistics-wise. And I found some under-pressure stats. He won 72.6% of his break points and 80% of his tie breaks. So it was a very good year, Brian. Q. Frank Sinatra. What stats do you place a high value on? Um, Some of the stats we've actually just talked about in terms of big picture, yeah, I'm going to look at the pressure points. How did he do on break points? How did he do on break chances? Did Was he able to save uh, break points if he faced them on his own serve? Um, in the individual matches, you've got to look at the serve numbers are where they start. Uh, unforced errors to winners, that can be, it doesn't, they're not quite as illustrative as the serve numbers are just because of the styles of play and the different conditions of the match. But if you're serving, if you're getting your first serves in at a high percentage, you're taking so much pressure off of yourself. If you're not getting them in at a high percentage, and we talked about that Miami loss to Nadal where he was only at about 60%, that's a pretty low first serve percentage. So you're putting a lot more pressure on your second serve. You're not going to be as aggressive or take as many risks on the second serve. So you don't have that attacking advantage quite as much on the second serve as you do the first. So to me, I usually look at the serve stats as the best picture of the way things are going to go or are going. Roddick coming in, uh, his match record was 38 and eight, three singles titles, 14 career singles titles at this point. And he recently hit or clocked a 153-mile-per-hour serve on grass. Brian, how was Federer able to neutralize Andy's serve so effectively? Besides being Roger, what did he figure out that others mostly couldn't? Well, are we talking in this Wimbledon final? Spoiler alert, they're going to meet in the final. Or are we talking about in general? Because Federer, of course, had a pretty good head-to-head advantage over Roddick. Which, which are you so looking towards? Whichever. In this final in particular, Roddick has some momentum with his serve. But he has gone on to say in, in interviews that, that Federer figured it out. He doesn't say what he figured out, but he says that he figured it out. So speak generally. This is one player that I think it's safe to say that Roger owned him, for lack of a better term, but others couldn't. His serve was, if you look at the stats on Tennis Abstract or wherever you read about it, Roddick's serve decimated opponents. But for some reason, when he played Roger, we talked about this last time, we talked about the basketball instead of the tennis ball. What was in Roger's calculus that made it different compared to his other opponents? Well, a lot of it, um, and I think we had talked about this a little bit last time, or maybe it was 2003 Wimbledon talking about Mark Philippoussis. Um, if you're a big server, which Philippoussis was, Roddick was even better, you're used to getting free points off your serves, easy points, easy service games. When it's coming back at you, that's uncomfortable. 
because it takes you out of your comfort zone. What is your greatest weapons now effectively been, if not completely neutralized, at least blunted. And it's a totally different frame of mind to be in. Instead of these real quick service games, I'm going to boom three aces, then hit a service winner. And next thing you know, it's back on surf for this guy. You're finding your surf come back at you. Um, if you're hitting it at 140, it's going to have some interest on it. So you've got to get yourself quickly in position to play the point. And that's where Federer shines with, we talked about his reflexes and his anticipation, yeah. his quickness, just the quick hands, how he's able to absorb the best blows of pretty much everybody else and then send it back at them. This final is a great example of Federer being able to do that. To It's similar... I'm going to do this every set, every time we do a show here and say, I hate the boxing. I don't love the boxing analogies for tennis, but they work. If you're watching a boxing match and you see a guy just kind of weathering the storm, there's a barrage. But if he, if you know, he could just weather that storm, the other guy punches himself out essentially, and he'll be able to, to now assert himself. Federer does a lot of that, especially in this final where Rada comes out guns blazing. But then Federer, as the match goes on, as the rain delays accumulate, he's able to just claw things back into his direction, the momentum and everything going that way, and then do what he does best. And that's that all-court style of game. He's more adjustable. He's more flexible to what you need to do to win. A little more lay of the land, since I'm a completist, cast of characters that are part of our Federer story to date. Now, Bandian comes into this tournament with a 20-7 and record. Uh, zero year titles and two career singles titles to this point. Fascinating thing I caught that I don't think we talked about. He was a finalist in the 2002 Wimbledon. Hewitt beat him there. Did we talk about that? We briefly did. Briefly yeah. did. Well, I mention it because it's a plus factor for my Hall of Fame case for him. For David Nelbandian? Yeah, some might say the only plus factor, but I, you know, just, just establishing that, uh, his bona fides there. He was a finalist in a Grand Slam for whatever that's worth, right? Uh, I, by the way, I did on your, uh, when you were describing the Hall of Fame to me, I went and I looked at all the people that are in the Hall of Fame now, currently, and uh, safe to say he's not going to get a phone call anytime soon, but I'll still make the case tacitly. Yeah, no shame in his career, excellent <laughs> career, but no, not a, not a Hall of Famer. Um, finally, Hewitt's 2004 record coming in was 32 and 10 with two titles and 21 career titles. Brian Roddick versus Hewitt, both prime who you got and some trivia. What is their head to head? That's a really good question about the head to head. And I don't know it, um, off the top of my head. Obviously Hewitt stuck around longer than you'll be surprised when I tell you, but who you got in their prime. I think Roddick in their prime. Um, based on the weapons he has, where Hewitt more of a, a counterpunching style that certainly worked for him, but Roddick had the had the firepower. So in their prime, I'm I'm giving it to Roddick. Does Hewitt have the head to head advantage? They are seven seven. Wow, they are tied in head to heads. I guess I'm not I'm not shocked. I'm certainly not shocked. I'm not that surprised that they're pretty even because okay, Roddick has the firepower, but if if Hewitt's able to like we talked about absorb some of that for a while. Um, if it's a best of three match, that's a different story than a best of five match. Um, and Hewitt was also a former world number one player. He won Wimbledon, something Roddick never did. Uh, so I'm, I'm not surprised by that. I love what you said about blunting their sort of offense. And I'm going to take your boxing analogy and I'm going to raise you Mike Tyson's punch out. It's like the equivalent of getting a star 
right? And then you have your super punch and you described it so eloquently. That's exactly what it is. Roddick's like, how did you hit that back? And by the time he's figured out how he hit that back, winner. Exactly. That's essentially what it is. And he was never able to get out of that cycle, it seems like. Well, it's not so much that it was a cycle to escape from. That was just his game and his game worked really well. But when you go up against a, a, a prime Federer, that game, he has the answers, essentially. Rankings of a couple of the usual suspects at this point coming into Wimbledon. Roger was, of course, number one. Roddick, number two. Nalbandia, number four. Safin, number 19. Uh, there were some missing faces this Wimbledon. Nalbandian was out with a torn abdominal muscle. Agassi withdrew. I couldn't figure out why. I don't know if you know. Nadal had a broken foot, uh, which also is kind of an amazing sort of just general statistic that he broke his foot and ended up having the career that he had. Usually it takes a little bit out of you, right? Uh, and then Gaudio, who won the French Open, withdrew from this tournament as well. Did this dilute the field for you at all? Does this diminish the Wimbledon championship at all? No, because by this point, those players are supporting players. The big guns, Federer and Roddick, for all intents and purposes here, they were here and they basically... I'm never somebody, I, I don't put any stock, I put minimal stock in, in diminished fields because it's, especially in tennis where it's, you lose once and you're done. It's, if you show up, you're ready to go. And whoever is the last person standing at the end of that tournament, well done, because that's the important part. Showing up, basically taking the ball, towing the line, whatever cliche you want to use here. Once you do that, once you're in the arena, then you're there and you're in the fight and whoever can win the fight is the deserved champion. That's how I look at it, at least. On the women's side, this Wimbledon was important. And I remember exactly where I was when I watched it. I was visiting my wife's parents and they had a little TV in a little room and nobody was interested in tennis except for me. So I went up and I was watching this match of this little uh, Maria Sharapova, 17-year-old Maria Sharapova, beating Serena in the final in dominant fashion. So you say little in terms of age because she, of course, six feet tall, not little in terms of stature. She, yeah, not, she was not diminutive. Exactly. Yeah. When I think of Wimbledon 2004, I think of it as the Sharapova Serena final. I don't think of it. The first thought that pops into my mind is not, oh, that was Federer beating Roddick, Roddick's first Wimbledon, t Wimbledon final. It's the Sharapova Wimbledon. It's where she burst onto the scene handily beat Serena. And I think what makes it more interesting and more in retrospect important was how Serena just has absolutely owned her for the rest of her career because it wasn't even a rivalry. We talked about Roddick uh, having his hard times with Federer in their careers. After 2004, Sharapova never beat Serena Williams again. Uh, she beat her here at Wimbledon in the final, beat her again, uh, at least one other time late in the year. I'm not sure if there was a third in there. And for Serena, to, it's almost like you spur somebody forward. This is one of those things that spurred Serena forward. She loses the final the way she did and was never going to lose to Sharapova like that again. I, I think that's the, the big headline coming out of this tournament. Oh, for sure. I remember it as Maria's Wimbledon as well. Um, she, of course, was ranked 13. Serena was 22 years old and was the defending champion number one seed. The other cool thing about this journey for Maria, she beat Davenport in the semis, which was considered a huge accomplishment as far as her career as well. So she went through two juggernauts to get the, the trophy. 
we talked about the fact that she dominated, but it behooves us to say how. She won 6-1 in the first set, and she battled against several break points to win on serve in the last game. So that statistic that we mentioned earlier, like the under-pressure statistic, she showed up, and it kind of reminded me a little bit of Rafa Nadal in Miami, this 17-year-old sort of audacity vibe going and it served her well and it obviously served him well the feel-good observation though it was i watched this again and i got kind of emotional uh she runs into the stands and and she hugs her dad and if you know anything about her story and her parents story like that was a beautiful moment for her it was a beautiful moment for tennis it was a beautiful moment for her and he was just exulting with all the sacrifice that they made to get her to that point it was a great thing to to witness again you kind of have talked about it but She never won against Serena again. She never beat Serena again. She had a victory later in their careers um, at Roland Garros. Later that year. uh, Later that year. But at Roland Garros also, I think Serena withdrew from the match or retired. she She didn't play. But in terms of beating her, shaking hands at the net, you've won more points. Yeah, she never beat her again. Why could she not replicate this success? Obviously, Serena, Serena, but... What did Serena figure out? Or what did Maria just... What about this was a fluke? Not to diminish her victory, but how was she never able to even become... Not even able to get even close again. She got dominated off the court. 45, 55, 60-minute matches pretty much for the next decade. What happened? Well, at this point, Sharapova had the booming serve. She was a power player. When she hurt her shoulder a few years later, it kind of fundamentally changed her game. So she's going, here it's it's strength versus strength with the Williams power, the Sharapova power. In the future, she had less power and that really hurt her. I think Serena did not at all like the fact she lost this final and that served as extra motivation to bring the A game every time she stepped on the court against Sharapova. And the converse of that is, yeah, Sharapova is going to project a, a confident facade, but the numbers don't lie. You know, if it's eight years later when they're playing in 2012, she knows, oh, wow, it's been eight years since I beat her. This is not a good feeling walking onto the court and seeing Serena Williams walking also onto the court at the same time as me. All those things added up together, I think, spelled doom essentially for Sharapova against Williams. I also don't think that it helped her that things got personal between them later on as their career went on too. So it was, an yeah, but by that point, the point where it did get a little more with Sharapova, some of the things she said, um, she was playing less. She was not at her best physically. So I don't know if that had a huge impact. It certainly, uh, I'm sure gave Serena some extra motivation, but I don't know if that, if that, really tipped things in one direction or another in your estimation do players know uh like you hear with nba players they'll be like yeah i'm not reading any what people are tweeting about me or what this person's saying but do they know do they know what opponents think of them and are they cognizant of the what's been said in a press thing here or a quote there are they generally on top of it or do they really stay in bubbles um a bit of both and it also depends on how honest the player is being. <laughs> um, a big thing, especially at tournaments, you'll, you'll hear players say, I think Serena always says this, uh, they, they don't look at the draw uh, right. in terms of who who they, if I win this, then I'm going to play. The, I, I believe Serena, I don't think she looks at the draw. Um, other players say that, but I, I think they, they have a pretty good idea of the draw. Federer is well aware of who he's going to be playing uh, next. 
Um, so th that is one thing where it can vary. And something else that's different, I, I think we talked about this in a past episode, just the nature of this sport, how it's so individual, you're not in the locker room that belongs to you and then your opponents in the other locker room. It's like going to the gym where there's one big locker room, everybody sharing it, you're eating in the same place. So you're, you're seeing the same people. It's like any workplace. Now you've got your coaches, your support team around you. So you're not necessarily going to be um, just it's not like the first day of school sitting in the cafeteria. It's, there's a little more cushion buffer, but you're still going to be around these people day in, day out. There are certainly friendships on the tour. It's like any workplace. You're closer with some people than others, uh, certainly in terms of nationality, language. Uh, if you train in a similar area, those all have an, have an impact. Federer's path to the final. This was kind of a snooze fest for him. He breezed through the, the breeze. first four rounds. Breezed in straight set victories. The only two real challenges came in the quarterfinal against Hewitt and the final against Roddick. Um, I want to point out the Fala match. Fala, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, in the round of 64, it was a clinic, 6-1, oh. uh, In that match, you get to see him do a running, no-look backhand winner. The commentator said that was something you would see right off the squash court. Thought that was a nice pull quote. The statistic that I found on this match that was interesting, and I just wanted to toss out at you, was this thing called the dominance ratio, which is the percentage of return points won over the percentage of serve points lost. Okay? So again, it's sort of a... The way I read that is... How insignificant is the opponent, essentially? And the ratio on this match against Fala was 2.74. And I'm going to give some context there in a second. He got 75% of his first serves in. The match was 54 minutes long. And Brian, this was a best of five match, okay? And it was 54 minutes long. His fastest best of three match that year was 47 minutes to give you some context on how fast this match was. The only player he dominated more that season was Christoph Vliegen. And if you have an anecdote about him, I'll be super impressed. He beat him in the first round of the French Open. His dominance ratio there was 2.85. Do you like the dominance ratio? Um, I think it can be... I, I mean, I like the numbers. If you're a player, that, that's very promising. But in terms of telling how it's going to be, I, I think you can look at the look at the time and look at the score. And I think that tells you enough because yeah. then they still have to go out and play the next round. Fala was a qualifier in the tournament. So, I mean, he was going up against the world number one. Yeah. It, you knew going in that this was going to take something really special. And that is something that we've talked about time and time again with Federer, how he doesn't let these guys get comfortable and enjoy them, not even enjoy the moment. You're never going to do that. But from the beginning, he's on the attack and racing out. He's working fast. He's serving fast. He's breaking surf. Everything is is happening quickly. I think that match was likely played on center court. If you're following, you've never played on a court like that in your life. You're going up against the world number one. I've talked to players about this based on the, those big show courts at majors. If you're the, you know, the lower seed and you're playing the big name on these court, you walk out and it's basically like, don't look up because then you look up and you're saying, wow, that, this place is really big. There are mm. a lot of people here. Wow. This is, this is something Next thing you know, the first set's over. Um, there's that factor where the head spin factor, and this it very well could have played a role in this match. Something else, as we talk about what a breeze Federer really had through most of his draw, this tournament 
this entire Wimbledon Championships was not a breeze because of the weather. As much as quickly as Federer worked uh, through this tournament, it was stressful. Um, he only lost one set going into the final, um, but based on the rain delays, there were no there was no play one of the days in the first week, and then again I think on the Friday of the first week. So they had to come back and play on the middle Sunday, which is traditionally the day there's no play at Wimbledon. They call it People's Sunday because if it happens, they haven't sold tickets. So once they realize it's going to happen, it's first come, first serve. Tickets are on sale. So it, it turns into a little bit more of a of a party atmosphere than the usual buttoned up crowd element that goes on at Wimbledon. Yeah, there's less of the, as the famous soccer player Roy Keane once said, the prawn sandwich uh, crowd. Um, <laughs> so this tournament, they had to play on... The middle Sunday, Federer and Roddick both had to come back, finish their semifinals on Saturday. It was like the old U.S. Open Super Saturday. Federer was almost done, so he only needed to take the court for 20 minutes. But that's really annoying because something, and it's a little bit different at Wimbledon because everybody stays right there. But if you have to play, it's not, oh, I show up an hour before my match win and walk off the court. If you are playing, you're going to get there well before the match, you can warm up somewhere on site. You've got to eat. You've got to get any kind of pre-match, uh, you know, massage treatment you need. You play the match. Match come, match is over. You've got to cool down. You've got to eat something. You've got to go talk to the media. You've got to, and then get back to wherever you're going. Wimbledon's a little bit easier because everybody stays right there. The U.S. Open factor in, let's say, an hour in traffic back to Manhattan. So it's draining, essentially, is yeah. the easiest way to put it, to be on site. So, okay, Federer's only on court for about half an hour on the, the semifinal Saturday, but it's still a day where, in a normal situation, he's going to have a light hit in the morning, so he will go over, but it's not match stress. He's stressing his body out. His cortisol levels are going up. The heart rate's going up, and it's a little bit more to recover from. So the weather is absolutely a story of this Wimbledon because this was, remember, pre-roof, so you couldn't just play through it. Let's talk about Hewitt for a second, and I got an interesting uh, question for you at the end of this. That match, Federer, I noticed, pretty much stayed in one place. He didn't move around a lot. He was the, His economy of motion was on full display. He rather moved Hewitt all over the court. The second set, he goes up 6-0 in the tiebreak and wins at 7-1. Third set, Federer breaks him early with a backhand winner straight down the line, and he wins the set 6-0. Third set, 3-3. Hewitt had two break points, and he gets it, but then Federer breaks him right back. So he kind of like has glimmers of hope, but then Federer essentially shuts it down. His match point, Federer's match point, was on Hewitt's serve, and Hewitt double faults. Probably the worst way to lose a match, safe to say. Brian, if there's no Federer, do Roddick and Hewitt play tennis longer um did he force them into early retirement i don't think federer is the answer there or is the the reason why they retired when they did they retired at very different stages too roddick you could say left on the earlier side basically he left them wanting more and for roddick and he's admitted this too and talked about this it becomes a question of is this worth it he's a guy who's number one in the world he's won a major he's been in major finals do I want to be out there week in, week out, where 
I'm not getting any younger. These young guys coming up are pretty good. You're chasing it. It's a Sopranos reference, it's a show we both like. Is it worth it? And I think he made the calculus that it wasn't worth it. Hewitt, on the other hand, has stuck around the game. He's the Australian Davis Cup captain. He'll play doubles in certain weeks uh, at different times during the year. He's more into the er, around the game now. Um, so, no, I don't think that's Federer. I think it's more just, is this worth it right now for us? Some compelling matches uh, this Wimbledon, besides the ones that Roger Federer was in. Uh, Hewitt versus Ivanisevic in the third round. This is Goran Ivanisevic's final Grand Slam appearance. This was a big storyline back then, as you probably remember. He was the wild card winner of Wimbledon back in 2001, I believe. And he was oh, a one. He beat Pat Rafter, yeah. And he was a runner-up several times, too. I also looked this up, thanks to you, recent Hall of Fame inductee. Talk a minute about him and his legacy and contribution to the game. Um, well, he's one of the more, I don't know if beloved is the word, but he's one of the more bigger character. not characters. You say characters, you think it's like, oh, they're a clown, and that's not the case, but personality, ton of personality, Great outgoing word. guy. So a lot of people really liked him, and it was so humanizing to see him fall short in Wimbledon finals, in finals at big moments before. And then 2001, we talked about the uh, the People's Sunday in this 04 Wimbledon, but this one, it was actually the People's Monday where they had to play the Wimbledon final on Monday between Ivan Isovic and Pat Rafter um, because of rain, pre-roof days. Federer and Roddick will do that again in a couple of years. We'll get to that down the road. Um, so they played that on Monday. I've talked to people who were there that day. They say it's the, the best atmosphere they've ever been to, not just for a tennis match, but for any sporting event, period. Um, because you get, let's call them the working class. Um, if you're a Croatian person living in London, Goran Ivanisevic is going to be playing in the Wimbledon final, and I know I can get tickets or I have a chance to get tickets. I'm going to get my tickets. I'm at center court, Wimbledon final. There's my guy on court. Um, so that was a really cool thing. That's part of his legacy, just that final and what it was. And now he's uh, creating an interesting part of his legacy, working with Novak Djokovic as his coach. And Djokovic playing some of his best tennis as we sit right now. Unfortunately, he hasn't lost in 2020. We said unfortunately because he's won two titles and then uh, things have stopped. So hopefully he will at least be back on court in 2020. But yeah, even Isovic is one of those big figures of this time in tennis. And per your calculus, his one championship put him in the hall of fame he also had three runner-ups to boot in a decorated career but nice to see that when i was researching him that he got in moya and hewitt played in the fourth round carlos moya of course he is a former number one and the reason i bring him up is he was a one-time nadal coach or he's nadal's current. coach current nadal current coach. nadal coach uh yeah so obviously a big part of the nadal story is his uncle tony who taught him how to play tennis and was his coach and they've got the academy now in Mallorca and all the different elements of that. And if you're Tony Nadal, a guy who I'm not sure his exact age, but I'm sure it's over 60, you know, traveling week in, week out for 15 years loses its appeal. Now, they're not flying uh, budget airlines, but, you know, it, it, it's a grind. So he had, there was a pretty clear transition plan in place. And there have been different people around the camp for a while. And Carlos Moya is, is, has been one of them for some time. But now he is traveling with Nadal as the week-in, week-out coach. But yeah, as you say, former world number one, former uh, French Open champion. So it's worked out well, certainly, with him and Nadal. Final uh, match of interest that I uh, checkmarked was Henman 
Tim Henman beats uh, Philippoussis, the prior year runner-up in the fourth round. Henman also beat Roger in 2004. Brian, is Tim Henman remembered for anything other than teeing up Andy Murray to the British tennis public? Uh, interesting you call it teeing up. Um, I think, so these guys were the best best British tennis players, men's players in some time, uh, Henman first. And certainly he didn't have the game Roddick did, but to get to the heights he got to, he got to a Wimbledon semifinal, immense pressure on him because yeah, of that. I remember. So that gave Roddick, or uh, Andy Murray, a way to understand what was coming uh, when he tried to navigate that process, and he did successfully. So it's different with Henman, but he's remembered as the British number one for a long time. He's now very involved at the All England Club and that administrative side of the game. He's done a lot of TV now, but he has a very good reputation with good reason because he's the guy, okay, he's not gifted, as gifted physically with this booming serve or anything like that, but he was a quick player. He had great hands, could really volley. So it's a player that the British public liked watching. Sure. He's a contender. Yes. Okay. The final, the men's final. Before you talk about the men's final, we have our little feature about highlighting somebody in the draw that might get overlooked. And looking at Federer, the road he navigated to get here, it's guys we've talked about and some other guys uh, who were in Wimbledon, so that's an accomplishment. But the big star, I want to talk about the guy Roddick beat in the semifinal, also delayed by rain, and that's Mario Ancic, because at this point, Mario Ancic had the last win over Federer at Wimbledon. He beat him in 2002. Ancic was a top 10 player for a decent while, but then we've talked about this, uh, the, one of the banes of tennis players, Mono. He got Mono, missed a couple of essentially years, and during this time, he'd been going to law school. I think he actually then went to Columbia Law School in New York City, and he's now an investment banker. Um, but we talked about Croatians, Goran Ivanisevic. Mario Ancic uh, certainly fits that description as somebody who doesn't get as much attention right now because the career didn't maybe blossom into what he had hoped for. But hey, he beat Federer at Wimbledon, first player to do that from that time, 2002, until six years later in 08 when Nadal finally did it. So I think that's a worthy tip of the cap. And he's a big what if in this semifinal even because of the rain delays. If things go differently, maybe it doesn't rain. Roddick doesn't beat him. Maybe things play out differently. And Mario Ancic is in the Wimbledon final. Who knows what happens when you get to a Wimbledon final against somebody you've beaten on this surface two years ago. So one of those what ifs, and I think he's our what if of the week. I like that you mentioned him. It's funny you mentioned him too because I circled him. I wanted to do a compare and contrast with him and Marin Cilic down the line here. So great stuff. Uh, okay, the men's final was a four-setter. Uh, Roddick takes the first set. Um, it's an interesting match to go back and watch. Like There are moments when you see Roddick potentially dominating this like and getting in Roger's head, but this is the one unique thing that I will say about Roger, he only really let two people get into his head, and that, in my opinion, is Nadal and Djokovic. There was a rain delay. Uh, I think two rain delays in this final. Uh, Roger's down a break. And the interesting statistic that I saw here, we're talking about serves, 
is that Roddick wins the first set, but he only had four aces. So he was doing something else other than serving, right? Uh, he also had three double faults, which was interesting to me. I guess if you're going big, sometimes no risk, no reward, you're going you're gonna to double fault a little bit. That might play into it. And then he had 11 unforced errors, which I thought was interesting given that he was pretty dominant in the first set. An impressive feat that I thought Federer had was he goes up 4-0 in the second set, but again, Andy manages to get it to 6-5. So he's in the match for the first two sets is kind of where I'm going with this. Federer, of course, wins the second set with a running forehand winner and scream, and I think that scream, uh, depending on the angle of the shot and depending on the crowd response, that scream dictates Federer's outcomes in many matches going forward. This one in particular was a devastating one. The third set, Roddick goes up 3-1. There's another rain delay, and this is where my question is going to for you. Federer comes back after the rain delay and wins the third set in a tiebreak, then dominates the fourth, Falls to his knees. He's pretty happy about this one compared to the Australian Open, his second title. They hug. And Roger Bryan later admitted he was lucky this match. No rain delay. Is history rewritten? Are we doing this podcast right now? We're still doing the podcast, but I think there is a very good chance that Andy Roddick is the 2004 Wimbledon champion because those rain delays and what they did they really took the momentum away from Roddick. When you look at that third set, um, Roddick was up 3-1. 3-1, then 4-2. So he's two games away, unable. He's 4-2 when the rain delay comes. So he's two games away. If you don't leave the court there, he's five minutes away from two sets to one up on Federer. But instead, leave the court. Everything changes. And then you've got to come back. Federer's racing back. He saved six break points in that Third set breaks him. Excuse me, the fourth set he saved six break points, but to get it into that tie break, Federer for the third set to come back from two four down, you're in danger of going down two sets to one. Could be a completely different match if not for that rain. The rain had a lot to do with this tournament, had a lot to do with this final, taking nothing away from either of these players. And I, that's something I wanted, I wanted to dwell on because in many ways this final, I would say, lived up to the billing. Um, there were especially here in the U.S., anytime these two would play at a major, there, there's hype around it. But a lot of times it, it was pretty one-sided. The match would turn out to be one-sided. This one, one versus two, defending champion against the world number two. These were the players everybody wanted to see in the final. It was the first time they had met in the final, and Roddick comes out firing. He, you're thinking, okay, here we go. He's going to win this first set. But once again, Federer just able to weather that storm. No pun intended with the rain. The rain delay certainly helped, but he's able to adjust. Amazing quote by Roddick after the final. He said, I threw the kitchen sink at him. He goes into the bathroom and got the tub because that's essentially what happened. That's the best way to describe what Federer did, not only in this Wimbledon final, but what he's done to scores of people in big matches throughout their, his career. Okay, Brian, three grand slams are in the books. Contextualize this. Where are we at with Roger historically? Is he already an all-time great? Yes, he's an all-time great because he had won three majors. He's the best Swiss player ever. But then you start to look at the company he's keeping as the world number one, as a major champion, defending a Wimbledon title. At this point, now that Federer's won this Wimbledon final, 
He joins pretty elite company. Bjorn Borg, Jimmy Connors, Stefan Edberg, only players in the open era to win their first three major finals. But what's really impressive, we didn't know at the time. It's like if you saw Joe DiMaggio start the 56-game hitting streak, if you saw game three, they go, oh, this DiMaggio guy's pretty good. This Wimbledon 2004 marked two, the start of two records, which I think are some of the most impressive things Federer's done. 23 consecutive major finals, or semifinals, excuse me, semifinals. Wimbledon 2004 to Australia 2010. He's in the last four every single major in that stretch. Not only is that impressive to win those matches, you've got to show up. You've got to be healthy. And he was able, he's been very blessed with health throughout his career. That's tremendous. The other one that goes even longer, the quarterfinals. Wimbledon here to the French Open in 2013. That's 36 consecutive major quarterfinals. Those are things that you ask about things that could be beaten. Could they be? Yes. But for the time being, they are very strong pillars in the Federer argument as one of the greatest of all time. That's my goat. And those are numbers that I think prove that well. Yeah. Yeah. Some questions and debates that I kind of want to deposit now, but I want to revisit in future episodes I kind of mentioned this earlier. What's his best year or season? It's kind of too early to say right now. 2003 or 2004 by some accounts based on the research I did for this one is considered that, but I want to I want to be able to contextualize it. Uh, so something to focus on that we can get into after a few more of these. But another thing I'd like to do is these matchup what ifs. And you kind of touched on it a little bit already, but maybe some revisionist history here, Brian. If Agassi had played... Nalbandian had played. How would the brackets look, and would we have the same result? Yeah, the result would have been the same. I mean, Federer and Roddick were, I don't even know if Federer was at his peak yet, but he's the world number one. He had not lost on grass since Wimbledon 2002. He won Halle, the German warm-up, 2003, Wimbledon 2003, wins Halle 2004, Wimbledon 2004. So that's two years where he has not lost on grass. He's the best player in the world right now. And Andy Roddick was not a close second, but a pretty comfortable second. He, this was Roddick at his peak as well. Um, so with those people who are absent, I think we, I called them earlier and it almost sounds dismissive, but it's true. They're supporting players at this point. Now, they're important. They give an Oscar for the best supporting actor and actress, but they're not the star. Or they're stars. But right now, July 2004, the heavyweights are Federer and Roddick. Okay. Agassi especially is going to play uh, Federer in a final coming up pretty soon. So I'm trying to keep him in the loop. And then obviously, uh, I think we can't do this project without giving him a tribute on his last Grand Slam, which we'll definitely do. So we'll give Agassi his due going forward. Any final thoughts, stray items on this tournament, Brian? Yeah, a uh, really interesting note that I had forgotten about until reading about this. So Andy Roddick, in his road to the final, he had only lost one set as well. He had a slightly tougher time than Federer getting there, but he still only lost one set. Uh, Roddick, in this tournament, in the quarterfinals, he beat Shang Shalkin from the Netherlands. And fascinating, I mean, far bigger than tennis, the Italian Open, the clay event in May, there was a fire at the tournament hotel. A couple people died, sadly. Roddick's room was on one floor. Schalken's room was on the floor above. Schalken jumped down onto Roddick's balcony. And then they walked down ladders the fire department set up. So these two guys go through this near-death experience, this traumatic thing together. And then 
two months later, month and a half later, they're on court against each other in a Wimbledon quarterfinal. And I think that is really fascinating about the different dynamics that that creates. And Roddick has said that it, it had brought them closer. They had, you know, they had always been friendly, but this certainly, you go through like that, something like that with someone, that's going to make things a lot more, just put everything in perspective on the tennis court, off the tennis court. So that is a, a footnote that is obviously a very sad footnote that some people lost their lives, but it's a, a footnote that goes well beyond the tennis court. That's a great footnote. And they literally walked through fire together and then they played in the Wimbledon quarterfinal. Love that. Love that you found that. Something else, um, another note to pick up on, and maybe we can get into this a little bit more when we talk about the 2004 U.S. Open. Um, 2004 was an Olympic year. Olympics have been important for Federer. That's where he met his wife when she was uh, representing Switzerland. He was too. It's Sydney in 2000. They met as part of the Olympic delegation. But he goes to Athens in 2004 and does not win the gold medal. He has never won the Olympic gold in singles. And I think that is something that has really been driving him these last couple of years. And the fact that the Olympics were postponed to 2021 makes it very interesting now. I think that a lot of players, maybe Venus Williams, had circled those Olympics as this is a nice place to maybe wrap things up. But the uncertainty, and I, I don't know anything that this is a case, but the, the math works out. I mean, Venus Williams will be 40 this year. Does everybody put that on hold? What does that do? If Federer had already won an Olympic gold, would he have maybe wrapped things up a little bit earlier? I don't think so, but who knows? But 2004, losing to a young Thomas Burdich at the Olympics in Athens, I think that does change things, and it sets up a pretty historic autumn from there for Federer. We talk about, and we'll get into this as we go on, but when you talk about the best years for Federer, 2004 is certainly in the conversation. Maybe it's not the number one overall, but it's in the top, I'll put it in the top four easily. Okay. Next time, is the Olympics a good starting point for our story of the 2004 U.S. Open? Or is there, is there another place you'd like to start? No, I think we can look at it from post-Wimbledon because... Federer won a bit, and then you wonder, did he tire at all down the stretch that summer of 2004? And if he did, he certainly recovered in time for the U.S. Open, another tournament that we talk about Federer breezing through a draw. I mean, he had a, an epic with Agassi at that U.S. Open, which we'll talk about. He had a very interesting match with Marcus Bagdadis, but he had one, oh, of, yes. the more, one of the more straightforward finals uh, he ever enjoyed over Leighton Hewitt in that U.S. Open final 2004. So we'll pick it up, I think, that late summer of 2004 and how things went for Federer over that stretch. Late summer 2004 sounds good. I got really excited when you said Baghdadis. He was one of my favorite guys on the tour. I saw him play live against Agassi that match. I think it was a five-setter. And this match against Federer was an amazing thing, too. Great to be able to relive that with you. Stay well, and I will talk to you next week, buddy. Thanks, Vic. You too. You too.